Blog Talk Radio. Humanity, human beings, human love, on a spiritual tip, so vast, so great, the African embrace, live beyond love beyond your skin to where you belong Original one. Keep up the 
Now, we know about the, the situation between the Ethiopian army and the Tigrid minorities in Ethiopia in terms of this physical scuffle that's going on in Ethiopia. Well, interestingly enough, as usual, the United States uses it as a pretext to impose economic conditions on Ethiopia to express purpose in terms of facilitating as much imperialism you know, in Ethiopia as possible. So even though uh, they say that they, they care about the human rights as pertains to the Tigray people, the reality is that it's not any, there's no real concern in terms of Tigray. It's more, has more to do in terms of having access to those resources out of Ethiopia. So I thought it would write this article just to talk a little bit in terms of the pervasiveness of imperialism and why it's not going anywhere unless African leaders propose a different way of doing things on the continent. So in event, Brother Africa, check this out. The scramble for Africa is a vague term for many people, but the legitimacy of the term is couched in history and economics uh, too extensive to abrogate or deny. Recently, an article entitled A New Scramble for Africa by Tom Foley laid out antagonism of U.S. foreign policy and Ethiopia's quest to build an economy that's sustainable while providing for its people's needs. U.S. antagonisms abound when recently the U.S. Development and Finance Corporation secured a contract with the consortium of companies to fund Ethiopia's 5G network. The first next day, according to the article, the U.S. State Department imposed sanctions on Ethiopia's government and military. Under the guise of protecting human rights in Ethiopia, specifically the Tigray minority, belies the true motivation of U.S. sanctions. First, the Development Financial Corporation, the DFC, was created by the U.S. in 2019 specifically to challenge China's relationship with, with African states but more important, to maintain imperialism subjugation of Africa. DFC is not an independent entity, but a conglomeration of U.S. corporations whose interest in Africa exists only in a monetary sense. DFC is strategically set up to maximize the ruthless exploitation of Africa's resources without having to go through bureaucracy and limitations imposed by international law. Secondly, the possibility that these sanctions may include eliminating, eliminating access to IMF World Bank loans come across as punitive. Ironically, as a U.S. asset, according to the State Department, why such heavy-handed treatment? During the emergence of the IMF in 1946, Ethiopia was one of three African countries present during that, during that development. The other two, Egypt and apartheid South Africa, have been beneficiaries of U.S. government funding in the face of human rights abuses. So why such provocative stand against a nation which the U.S. views favorably? In a nutshell, imperial ambitions. In order to appreciate the U.S. dismissive tone toward Ethiopia, it is important to understand the role structural imperialism plays in relationships between the U.S. and African states. As I alluded to previously, the Development and Finance Corporation, or the DFC, chiefly created to counter Chinese influence in the African continent. Like previous initiatives formulated to assist Africa's economy, DFC's objectives seek to perpetuate the master-slave relationship with the focus being, how can Africa be of financial benefit to the West? This sentiment manifests itself during Bretton Woods when it was agreed Africa would play no part in the global economy. Relegated to colonial status in, in, in IMF analytical framework, the ideas of real economic growth only pertain to most Western economies. Needless to say, IMF, the International Monetary Fund strategy, perpetuated the notion Growth in African colonies, colonies was nonsensical or ridiculous. Feeling the objective meaning of the, of the colony denotes powerlessness, dependence, and vulnerability, architects of IM, I, internal 
excuse me, International Monetary Fund, agreed formulating statistical projections, methodological framework constitute an impossible task given colonies like Africa don't set commodity prices, do not control their own currency or, or the value of trade it engages in. In keeping with the imperialistic assessment, C mandates provide concrete proof of imperial veracity. According to DFC bylaws, loans are only available when they serve the interest of capital, not the interest of the local economy, certainly not the interest of African states. Stipulations for these loans are, one, improvements to buildings or other facilities, two, purchasing ICT equipment like data processors, computers, text processing equipment, etc., or three, repair or refurbish anything that's capital-intensive, or in other words, anything that makes money for the West. These stipulations exist to serve imperialism, imperialism only. By IMF's own account, quote, the policy framework is limited to microeconomics, exchange rate policy, fiscal and monetary aspects of structural reforms, end quote. Stated simply, social issues like unemployment, homelessness, and health care in Africa is not a concern of the West. Institutions like IMF are concerned with access to Africa's raw resources, the cheapest way to ensure access to these raw resources. To the extent empathy for Africa exists involved, access to Western loans providing the term of the loan increases the level of African debt. This sleight of hand is achieved by policy which states poor countries vying for loans from the IMF, utilizing the special drawing rights to Western currency, ensures African foreign currency, their account, oh, excuse me, their account with IMF decreases. Let me say that again. I got it all messed up. <laughs> okay. Essentially, what I'm saying is that in order to, in order to get this loan under special drawings right, African Africans have to, African states have to meet, meet, meet a certain amount of criteria in terms of getting these loans. Uh, these loans are not easy to come by, but the problem is that every time they access one of these loans, it's done so in, in the context of African currency, because Af, it's in terms of Western currencies, because Western currencies are so much more valued than African currencies, and they carry much more weight. So it takes an exorbitant amount of African currency to even measure up to Western currencies as a, con, as a conflict. And as, as, as a justification, as a problem, actually. And one of the things is when they borrow money in terms of from the IMF, and you have to pay back this, these loans based upon the value of Western currency, it means that you have to expend a lot of the only on African currencies in terms of just being able to repay um, uh, these current, repay your loans back. As a consequence, it's, it's a drain on African resources. And so this is fundamentally one of the problems in terms of when Africa loan. When Africa borrows money from from the institutions, particularly INF or the World Bank. Now, this is paradoxical for two reasons. First, access to loans are directly related to the amount of funds in an IMF account. Secondly, voting rights in the IMF is related to the amount of funds in the IMF account. Now, obviously, Africa doesn't have a lot of terms of being able to be a player as it relates to the IMF, but certainly the U.S. does. The U.S. currently spends about $117 billion a year on IMF. And so, therefore, in terms of what actually goes in terms of funding uh, as it relates to the IMF, the U.S. is in, in, in control in terms of who gets what and how much they receive. Now, indebtedness of African states is also achieved by seeking agreements from Western nations to perform swaps. Already hampered by an international system that sets commodity prices, undervalue these commodities to make huge profits in the West while devaluing African currency, increases economic instability in Africa. Engaging in swaps increases the instability given the African states must give up even more of their economy to secure that loan. Ironically, measures taken by international banks to reduce poverty in Africa always end up increasing poverty. In the 80s, the compensatory financial facility was established to, to compensate Africa states 
for structurally low commodity prices set by the West. In the 90s, extended fund facility which provided low-term loan, long-term loans. In 2000, the poverty reduction and growth facility. This policy replaced the Washington, D.C. policy and implemented a plan based on African leaders' participation. Supported by both the U.N. and 2000 and others, the plan was adopted by the IMF in 2004. This is 2019, and the plan has still not been implemented. Now, will this plan alleviate poverty in Africa if enacted? Of course not. The colonial status of Africa has not changed. Africa leaders at some point had to see pan-Africanism is the only solution in terms of the problem. And one last thing, Brother African, I conclude, this is important people get this. This whole concept in terms of the, with the IMU is called usable currency. Now, essentially, African currency is considered no use to sparing global economic growth. In fact, useful currency, uh, in, in this context, we're talking about dollars, pounds, marks, so forth and so on, Western currencies, disadvantages Africa because it, if Africa borrows from the IMF, foreign reserve capital greatly decreases. Low levels of foreign currency, in addition to the highest interest rates in the world, means Africa must borrow considerably from Western countries to finance its deficits uh, from low commodity prices set by the West. In addition to established weaknesses of African currencies, created by the West to ensure Africa is subjugated by a global system devalue Africa and its people, not just Africa, but globally, ensures the continued marginalization of Africa. So clearly when you talk about the structural problems in terms of financing you know, or global trade, we have to understand, one, first and foremost, the World Bank, was when it was created, it had no interest in terms of empowering Africa. That's the first thing that we very, very clear on. The second thing is start to create those kind of, those kind of systems to ensure essentially to lock Africa out of the world's economy. So when you assess world growth, Africa's not even included in that process, but simply because they're saying that Africa doesn't have control of its own resources, it doesn't control the commodity prices, so therefore it's not a real play in terms of setting prices internationally as far as international trade. So Africa is essentially locked out. And as long as African leaders continue to play this game in terms of set this, this game established by the West, then Africa's going to be a loser. So African leaders at some point have to realize that uh, the only real solution is pan-Africanism and that you must set your own prices, your own commodity prices. You must control your own currency. And without those things, uh, a free and liberated Af and prosperous Africa is simply impossible. So it's important that people understand. So when we talk about imperialism, understanding that we're talking about is structural phenomenon, and that's something that simply happens because people lack the skills or the ability in terms of actually uh, um, innovating as, as relates to their economy. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Next, we go to Brother Moses, and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse direct verdicts, Brother Africa. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And uh, I like to say equal rights amendment, ERA, yes, because women hold up half the sky. And I want to thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show. Welcome, Brother Moses, and thank you for being on the program. Next, we will go to caller. Identify yourself. Uh, seven two three six. Seven two three six. 
Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Yes, Brother Africa, this is Eleanor Johnson. Um, Good evening to everyone. Uh, Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I um, am delighted to be here, and I wish everyone a happy Memorial Day weekend as we celebrate our lost brothers and sisters, uh, our fathers, our grandfathers, and our ancestors. Um, They are not forgotten and are truly remembered. And we also want to, I'd like to also let the people of the world know that we are struggling for democracy and social, social justice everywhere. And we invite you to join us on Africa on the Move by calling in and sharing your thoughts. And thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's program. We thank you, Sister Eleanor. And let's see who's calling last for number 9072. We'd like to welcome you to the Africa Moon. Call 9072. Okay, call 9072. Okay, what we're going to do right now, uh, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss what's going on in your world and the community. And then it will be followed by, we have a special guest coming on, who will be speaking to the topic, Tulsa 1921 and today. That will be the order of our lineup. And we'd like to just remind you that you are listening to Africa on the Move. We'll be right back.
watoto afika watoto wa kongwe tuache choke ubaguzi wa kabila eh eh tuungane tupeane mawazo ndo tutajenga iti yetu kongo tuepuke vita tukataye vita juki na fitina ili kongo yende mbele Africa nzima mama 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 eh oh na lelie mama Check this out. 
Now, deadly force utilized by law enforcement in carrying out its duties disproportionately impacts Africans and other people of, people of color. This strategy of deadly force is often employed against ethnic minorities who are unarmed or pose no legitimate threat to law enforcement. Understanding this propensity of discriminatory killing through the lens of history clearly the role of colonial institutions predicated on the subjugation and oppression of enslaved African people. Slave patrols were specifically created to monitor and control the movement of African people. This control of movement by Africans was facilitated by laws that empowered state, uh, slave patrols, in other words, police, to arbitrarily detain Africans, both enslaved and free, from leaving the plantation. This law ensured the labor needed by plantation owners could be acquired relatively free since Africans, in most cases, were powerless to barter. In this regard, police were or are instruments of state capitalism apparatus committed to the coercion and marginalization of African people by use of state-sanctioned abuse and violence. The state's indifference to police abuse and killing of African people both historically and today is the direct result of institutions denying African place in society. Capitalism predilection for profit at all costs, even human life, means those incapable for whatever reason of providing cheap labor are expandable. As capitalism declines, those who at one time provided immense profit with their labor are now a burden. Handling that burden is a responsibility of police. With increased unemployment, homelessness, decreasing educational budgets, and all things of social economic nature, the hopelessness and despair among people, particularly African people, grows. The state, rec the state recognizes inevitability and risks even more horrific violence by police to kill, whether or not a threat exists. Reforming the police is nothing the state can justify. For the state to embrace reforms is equivalent to a boxer attempting to fight with one hand tied behind their back. As the first time of defense against the hungry, the unemployed, the ill-educated, the wretched of the earth, why would the state expose itself to threats from marauding hordes? Notwithstanding the history or the evolution of the police, the strategies and tactics employed by the state to legitimize police killings are mired in legalisms and bureaucratic obfuscations that's appalling. Since 2014, the FBI has been tasked with the responsibility to obtain the statistics for police use of force. Compiling the stats from law enforcement agencies ensures an objective measurement of police killings, thereby creating a precedent for police reform. This responsibility of the FBI has been unsuccessful for two reasons. One, the FBI maintains states providing info, information on killings or police violence is voluntary. This disposition is complicated by the FBI's interpretation of federal statutes, specifically the statute which talks about deprivations of rights under the color of law. The FBI's interpretation of the statute determines whether the Bureau forwards a complaint to the Department of Justice for an investigation, ultimately criminal charges. According to former Justice Department employees, the small number of complaints forwarded to the Department of Justice for investigations into police killings is attributed to, is attributed to the FBI. Superimposing the FBI mandates, we have a different concern. Normally, when the states request a FBI investigation around the use of force, mandates require the FBI to look at the state's constitution on use of force to assess if specific laws conflict with federal statutes. State laws are given wide latitude around use of force, and the possibility of those laws coming into conflict with federal statutes are extremely rare. Again, rare has a direct correlation to history. Question of states' rights prevented framers of the Constitution from creating a standard regarding use of force for states. Instead, the Constitution relies on the Fourth Amendment applying unreasonableness, of my word, to define what constitutes applicable use of force. Obviously, what is considered reasonable from unreasonable is very political. Secondly, the FBI must, con must continue with laws in the Constitution with states. 
every state must respect other states' laws and traditions. Under Article 4, Section 1 of the Constitution, the FBI decision to forward complaints to the Justice Department for use of force violations must, must, could easily lose credibility with the Department of Justice by appearing not to understand the law. From a legal framework, the structural nature of the Constitution makes the reduction of police violence impossible to eradicate. Barring congressional amendments, the only solution to police killing lies in the hands of the people. Of course, placing this responsibility on citizens is unfair, but the sheer dimensions of police violence and killing demands our attention. The indifference practiced by those in power underscore the length they are willing to look the other way. Among federal prosecutors, only about 27 of every 100,000 cases represents use of force violations by law enforcement. On the state level, only 44 of 120 officers have been convicted, been convicted for manslaughter or murder in the last 15 years. According to the Transaction Records Access Clearinghouse, quote, 69,536 cases filed by feds for illegal entry into the country, 467 cases filed for simple drug possession, and 119 prosecutions for illegally taking fish, wildlife, or migratory birds, end quote. Weighed against the crime of taking innocent lives, one has to conclude that taking an act on lives by unscrupulous police is not much of a concern for this capitalist structure. This backdrop, can anyone honestly afford to be apathetic? And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. And what we're going to do, we're going to make a minor adjustments. We're going to pause on the segment, what's going on in your world community. And we can go directly with our special guest today as we speak to our theme, Tulsa, 1921 in the day. That's our theme. We have a special guest. We have with our sister Camille, who lives in Oklahoma. She's going to share a historical narrative, an aspect of the history of Tulsa, 1921, and its impact on our community and our people. So right now, we'd like to bring sister Camille in and welcome her to Africa on the Move. And Sister Camille, we know as an educator, as a writer, and many other things, you give us a brief definition of Sister Camille. Camille, welcome to Ask on the Moon. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. This is a day. I want to start this story I'm going to tell you by asking you to close your eyes. I'm sitting here at the intersection of Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and John Hope Franklin Avenue in Tulsa's uh, Greenwood community. I want you to imagine if you had been in this place 100 years ago tomorrow because you would have heard the screams of black people being shot and wounded, the screams of black people whose houses were burnt down, often with them inside the cries of people holed up seeking sanctuary in a church as the mob broke the windows out, the beautiful stained glass windows that the people had sacrificed to buy and to to install in their place of worship. I want you to imagine what this city was like 100 years ago when a massacre occurred. One of two bombings of American cities in the history of this country the first one being Tulsa's Greenwood community, and the second one being the block of Philadelphia that went up in flames in later years. Uh, Osage Street, my brother tells me. So let's go back a little bit. 
I'm going to talk a little bit about what actually happened, and then I'm going to talk about why it happened. On May 30th, uh, May 31st, May 30th of 1821, a young brother by the name of Dick Rowland, a teenager, 17 years of age, who made his living in Tulsa as a shoe shiner, um, decided, he didn't decide, he, he went to the only place in downtown Tulsa that would allow us to use the facilities. He went to the bathroom. Now, let, let me rewind this story a little bit. Um, he worked downtown. He had dropped out of high school where he was a star football player because he made so much money shining shoes in the town that called itself Magic City. Because this city, Tulsa, Oklahoma, had oil, and oil is gold, and gold is power and wealth and everything that America cares about. So Dick Rowland uh, worked as a shoe shine, shoe shiner. They called him a boy, of course, but he was a man taking care of himself. And he walked into the Drexel building to use the only public restroom that African people could use in segregated Tulsa, because, boy, it was Tulsa segregated. He went into an open elevator cage, elevator operated by a 17-year-old white girl by the name of Sarah Page. Now, descriptions of what went on after that depend upon who you talk to. The people of Tulsa's Greenwood District say that Dick Rowland and Sarah Page lived in the same rooming house, which is is a known fact, and that they were carrying on a romantic relationship and, in fact, were planning to run away to Canada, to Mexico, to to the open west and get married, despite the laws of this country that made such an act a crime. At any rate, um... Something happened. Somebody saw Dick Rowland and Sarah Page on this elevator and said something to him, and he ran out of the elevator, out of the, out of the building, and down the street. He was soon arrested and accused of assaulting a white girl. The charges were eventually dropped, and Page wrote a letter exonerating him. But the accusation was enough to make Tulsa break out in flames. About the newspaper, the Tulsa Tribune, wrote a story with the headline, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator. And hundreds of white men gathered outside the Tulsa courthouse where Roland was being held in the jail. Now, 1921 was a few years after World War I. And a significant number of African men had been drafted into and even voluntarily joined the U.S. military and fought for this country. When they came back from Europe, they had two things. A, they had a knowledge that there were places where being born with a black skin did not condemn you to a life of servitude and inferiority. And number two, They had weapons and the training to use them. To make a long story short, they were not in the mood to take any more white nonsense. 
Now, you have to remember, in 1921, a significant number of the African people in this country had experienced slavery themselves, and an even larger number of people born since the so-called emancipation, nonetheless, could put their hands on their elders who bore the, the, the whiplashes, the, the stripes on their back from whiplashes, and the horror and the, of generations upon generations of slavery. In 1921, we were only two generations removed from the emancipation of black people. So you've got a bunch of Africans who were not in a mood to take this nonsense. And when the whites surrounded the courthouse with plans to break um, Roland out and lynch him, as had happened even to white people in that very place just recently, like a couple of weeks prior. The black World War II veterans and other African men from Tulsa gathered together, armed themselves, got in their automobiles, and came downtown and surrounded the, the courthouse. Well, the sheriff said, I don't need your help, y'all need to leave, and then called on the governor to turn out the National Guard. Meanwhile, hundreds of whites were gathered at the courthouse, and they were deputized. Some say they deputized themselves. And the sheriff said, we don't need you either, but he didn't say that very loudly. When they weren't allowed Roland out of the Tulsa courthouse, the whites were in a frenzy. They started moving north into the Greenwood District, and they set fire to practically every building in our community. That included a dozen churches, five hotels, 31 restaurants, four drugstores, eight doctor's offices, more than two dozen grocery stores, and a black public library, just for starters. That information, by the way, is coming from an Oklahoma commission to study the Tulsa race riot um, in 2001. By the end of that night, when daybreak came and the violence finally ended, the city was placed under martial law. Thousands of Tulsans were being held under armed guard. They marched all the Africans they could get their hands on into a corral, a livestock corral. And the state's second largest African community had been burned to the ground. The count of our community is that about 326 people were killed. About 10,000 were left homeless. And 35 square blocks of Greenwood, which had been arguably the country's most prosperous African community, were burnt to the ground. Bodies were lying in the streets. Bodies were piled into horse-drawn carriages, wagons. Bodies were tossed into the river and dumped into mass graves. It is still impossible to this day to get an accurate count of how many people died. While the ruins were still smoking, the first black lawman in Oklahoma, who was named Barney Cleaver, and Tulsa Sheriff hustled Dick Rowland out of town. He disappeared. Nobody seen or heard from Dick Rowland. 
People in the community say that he changed his name and skedaddled. There is other people there are other people who say Dick Rowland was killed by the sheriff. Question is is yet to be answered. But that is not the central issue. One evening of white people's rage and wrath toward the African community isn't really the whole story. It's the tip of an iceberg. So a lot of questions, okay? One of the things about this situation, well, let me go back a little. Let me set the stage for what Tulsa was in 1921. As I said, 1921 is only a couple of generations removed from the time that we were in chains in this nation. And the few of us who were not enslaved were, were fighting, struggling just to survive. Oklahoma had, at that time, 52 black towns. That's 52 incorporated towns and cities where African people, many of, of whom had walked to this state, to this land, as yet um, before it even acquired statehood, had walked into Oklahoma. First of all, there was the promise of Oklahoma as a black homeland. The name that was used as a Choctaw word, Oklalusa, which means land of the black man. By the way, Oklahoma is a Choctaw word that means land of the red man. Now this state had been promised the eastern half of it to indigenous people and the western half of it to African people. This was our 40 acres. I guess the mule was still waiting on. But this land was literally the African promised land for those of us who had survived chattel slavery. So the people came. They came in wagons. They came on, on horseback. They came on muleback. They came on foot. And they came to this state, what was to become this state, and they built a life for themselves. They built a life for themselves that was safe, from white racism and white terrorism to the greatest degree possible for any African people in this nation. They built townships that had their own ways of generating income. They grew cotton, but then for once, they didn't just pick that cotton, hoe that cotton, chop that cotton, bale that cotton. They also owned the cotton gins. They built automobiles. They built wagon wheels, they built wagons, they built houses, they had lumber mills and, and stands of timber that were purchased with the money earned by black sweat, which for the first time in the history of this ugly nation, ugly habits, had been earned and kept and invested by African people. So this really was, is to the greatest degree that it's possible, in a racist country, this was the black promised land. Now, people who came to Tulsa, these were folks who wanted to live in the city. But like I said, they had banks, they had schools, they had shops, they had tradesmen, they had churches, they had doctors, they had dentists, they had lawyers, they had barber shops, they had beauty shops. You couldn't go downtown and shop and buy yourself a suit of clothes. 
You couldn't go and buy a sofa, but you could go into your own community where you could be treated with respect. And so the African people in Tulsa had prospered. Many of them owned land out in the countryside where black gold had been discovered, and so they were wealthy. Many of them were just ordinary working people, people who took in washing, people who did, who cleaned houses, people who scrubbed floors for a living. Everybody who lived in, in Tulsa, in Greenwood, was not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. But what they did have was a community of their own, where they were not only prosperous, but could be respected and to a great degree safe. The African people in Oklahoma, let me give you a little bit more history. When this state was founded, when it petitioned to become a state and to be admitted to the union, this was right after the Kansas-Nebraska Act where there had been a big deal about whether you know, the state was going to be a slave state or a free state. You know, we had gotten past, the country had gotten past that. The Civil War had been fought. Reconstruction was basically over. And everything south of the Mason-Dixon line was a Jim Crow state. So Woodrow Wilson, the then president of the United States, refused to allow Oklahoma to come into the Union as a Jim Crow state. If that had been part of the state's original constitution, Wilson said that he would veto any any um, law in Congress seeking to make Oklahoma a state. So what did the rascals do? Well, they wrote an initial charter that did not mention Jim Crow. Would you like to know what the first act of the Oklahoma state legislature was? I'll tell you, it was to institute Jim Crow laws. The first laws passed by this state legislature were racist laws aimed at limiting the lives and the life choices of the African people who lived in this state. The founders of this state were all high-ranking members of the Ku Klux Klan. Oklahoma had more KKK members than Mississippi. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but I wouldn't bet against it. So you're talking about a state that has all the makings of a terrible situation, of a tragedy. You're talking about a place with a racist heritage, and it wasn't an old racist heritage. It wasn't something that had been developed over the years. Instead, you're talking about people who looked, who actually studied the laws of other parts of southern and northern states that limited the life chances of African people and very systematically wrote into place and turned into law a series of of provisions that were, from their perspective, the best of the best, right? So the African people who owned, who, who lived in and populated neighborhoods like Oklahoma's Greenwood District in Tulsa and Oklahoma City's Deep Deuce, and the people who lived in the traditionally black towns like Bowley and Okmulgee and Arcadia and so forth, these people were almost like, almost like being on a reservation. They were in towns that they controlled but that were surrounded by extremely hostile white people. You throw oil and the oil wealth into the mix and you've got a real powder keg. 
And then you have many people who had come to the state to settle it, to steal it from the red people, and who um, were hell-bent on making sure that they got a piece of the pie. Many of them were hard-scrabble folks. In the same time that the African people of Greenwood were living in a prosperous community, that many of the white folks who had come to town were across the river living in shanties with a tin roof and a dirt floor. And uh, working in the oil fields, which is a dirty, dangerous, you know, rough way to make a living. And so they were looking on with envy at what we had accomplished in this city. They were looking on with hatred at African people who were walking around with their heads held high, acting as if they were kings and queens in their own domain. In their own domain. It didn't sit too well. So it didn't take much to set off that powder keg. If you've got a dump truck full of, 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 of powder, of gunpowder, all it takes is a tiny spark. And that's what happened on the night of the 31st of May in 1921. And that is how this city came to burn square blocks approximately. I'm sitting here now looking out the window. I see Parkland. I see Oklahoma State University, which has erected a campus in the middle of the Greenwood District. I see an expressway that was put down the middle of this community. Oh, let me say this. After Greenwood burned and after the people mourned and buried their dead, they went on to rebuild this community. They went on to build houses and stores and create banks and do all the other things that they had had before. And then the state went about the business of dismantling that wealth, dismantling that black power, and putting African people back in the place where white folks felt most comfortable with us being. And so here we sit today in a community that has still not come back into its own, in a community where very direct and, and purposeful development has divided the community down the middle, gentrified the community. The community sits, by the way, it, it was valuable land. It sits on a high point above the river right next to downtown Tulsa. It's hard to tell where downtown ends and Greenwood begins today. The street that the ballpark is on and and the, the city's biggest uh, sports arena are on is called Reconciliation Boulevard, you know, because it was one of the streets that was burnt out. So the story is, I mean, that's the story as I know it. In the aftermath of this atrocity, they proceeded to try to sweep it under the rug, so much so that until very recently, a lot of people born and raised in this state whose families had been here for generations didn't know about it. One of my daughters sitting in a college classroom a couple of years ago um, tells a story of a of, of little white girl in her class. When the professor told about the Tulsa race massacre, this little girl stood up and said, that is a lie. 
That is a damn lie. My family's been in Tulsa for generations, and I've never heard tell of this. This is some of that, you know, black identity nonsense, and stormed out of the classroom because they swept the whole story of the Greenwood Massacre under the rug. Newspaper reports said six black people died. Just in the past year, they've been hunting for these mass graves. They have found one of them, and it is to be opened in the coming weeks. They deliberately did not start digging up these people's graves in in the run-up to this centennial. Um, There are still people alive today who literally survived this massacre, who are still alive today. And you may have heard, if you've been following the news, tomorrow there was supposed to be this gigantic to-do in uh, the the ballpark downtown here, which, as I said, sits on the edge of the community. It was going to have Stacey Abrams, the sister from, um, from Atlanta, the voting rights activist. It was supposed to have John Legend. Barack and Michelle Obama were supposed to be here and a number of other people. And then Joe Biden is supposed to come on Tuesday. Two days ago, the plug got pulled on that because the survivors sued the commission that was putting on this whole to-do that we're, we're in town for this weekend. And because the reparations that had been promised to the survivors um, was, was just a penny-ante amount of money. And the, the survivors and the other people of the community said, either we get the, rest, uh, the reparations or we're not participating in this. And when Stacey Abrams and John Legend and the Obamas heard about this, they said, you know, we're with survivors. The deal is off. So the the commission was left with egg on its face and the ballpark sits empty. So the bullshit, pardon my French, is still going on. And it never stopped. It never stopped in the first place. But they can't even pull it together to, to play nice for a weekend. So that's the story okay. as I know it. Okay, Susan Camille, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, we're going to open up our phone lines to people who may have questions and issues that they would like to share and raise with Susan Camille as we begin to discuss and begin to learn the real and the true history of what happened in Tulsa back in 1921. And how does that compare to what's going on today? So we're going to pause for the calls, and we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. 
time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, for soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. made it through my journey, made it through my journey. Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Light is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
We would like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. I'm Brother Africa. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. Tonight, our theme tonight is Tulsa, 1921 and today. We are with Sister Camille, who is an excellent storyteller, as well as a historian, educator, writer, book owner, and many other positive things for our community. We are opening up our phone lines right now at 323-679-0841. you have any comment or question concerning this particular theme and story as it relates to Tulsa 1921, please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. We have a caller right now, Camille. We're going to bring this call in. Caller, your last four numbers are 0673-0673. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Your question or comment? Yeah, a whole tap Africa. Caller 0673. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine. Sister, that was the patience you gave. And you may be asked this question, you may not, but I appreciate you do the best you can. Uh, you talk about the resilience of African people, how they were able to come back and build. How do you get? How does a people who've seen everything they've built destroyed come back and rebuild? If you could answer that, if not, you know. And you, if you could also, wherever they rebuild, if it's still standing today, let me know that too. I appreciate that. Well. That that's a complex question, and and so the a good answer would have to be complex. But let me say this: Imagine, if you will, that you had grown up with the reality of slavery. And as I said, many of the people who lived in Tulsa at that time, many of the African people, had themselves been enslaved. And if they hadn't, their grandparents were. And they knew those stories, and they knew the horror of being powerless. They had lived through reconstruction. They had fled lynchings and beatings and patty rollers and the KKK in the the states of the South and even some of the states of the North. And they came here to this place knowing that the only way that they could have some measure of safety, some measure of liberty, some measure of dignity was to build it ourselves. And here's the other thing that's really important, because when you look at the origins of racism, they lie in capitalism. They lie in colonialism. And so one of the things that the African people who built Greenwood and the 52 black townships in Oklahoma knew is that they had to fall back on their, on their original, on their traditional values of communalism, of cooperation, of sharing, of mutuality, okay, of African love. And that's what this community represented. And so when we look today to a future in which our liberation will have been achieved, we have to remember that the system that enslaved us, the system that oppresses us, never will and cannot make us free. We have to move to a different approach. Some people might call it Pan-African Socialism. Some people might call it by another name. But it amounts to the people 
working together for the common good and not just to crown themselves with dollars and celebrate their own individual wealth and good fortune. Yeah, I appreciate that because I don't want people to use that as an excuse for not rebuilding. By saying, look what happened at at, um, Tulsa. But um, it happened at Tulsa, and the people that didn't just go home and just sit down, they went back out and said, we go rebuild, and I appreciate her response. Thank you, you, Carla. Let's try Carla one more time for the last time tonight. Carla 0796-0796. Question or comment, please. One seven nine six. Yes, thank you so much. A beautiful story. I, I'd like to share with you one thing that she said that really t- should touch everyone's heart in particular. There are three survivors that still remain. But there were 55 black communities in Tulsa and all over this United States. There were black communities, and I think of people like Zoe Neal Hurston, who talked about one being burned in Florida during the same time. And it shows you how institutions affect history and who writes history affects history because this is lost knowledge in every community, in every state throughout the United, in all southern and and new territorial states in the United States. The migration west was led by people who, after suffering the Jim Crow, because we had survived chattel slavery, found themselves in a depicable situation. Right around the District of Columbia, you had a township called North Inglewood, Maryland. Right up into the 70s, they were denied trash pickup or any access to municipal resources, such as the Public Works Department, to install sidewalks. So they raised the money and did it themselves. We see Chapel Oaks. We see Fairmont Heights. So there are black communities that were founded all across this country because of segregation. Folks said, okay, we'll do it amongst ourselves. We'll educate ourselves, and we will survive. And what was interesting about that Tulsa story is that in 1921, as the sister said, black people owned homes, as many at least, by conservative accounts, owned homes, as did whites in other parts of Tulsa. And we see that they built a park and uh, named it after one of the persons from Tulsa, from that horrible incident. We see that Congress allowed three of the survivors to come to the Hill and discuss what happened to them in their childhood. These are sanitarians. Thank God they were alive to tell the story. And I thank all the persons, including this wonderful storyteller, who in 1997 worked on this commission to tell this wonderful story of the diaspora. Because, in fact, the diaspora survived chattel slavery and worked to build communities all over the southern United States, 
Maryland, Virginia, Florida, are just a few that I know. And I heard of this situation in Tulsa, but I was blessed to come from a place where black history was American history. But it's lost, even to myself now as a senior citizen. What we failed to document, time, as James Brown said, will take us on. Money won't change you, but time will take you on. And I've forgotten many of these stories. So thank you so much, Brother Africa and the wonderful storyteller who reminded us of the many townships that lie in this untold story in this country. And may we all remember that the red brick sidewalks are the blood of our ancestors. The black tarred streets are our skins. And the green trees are a hope for a better tomorrow. And the blue sky is what will be. So I just say strong, stand strong, African diaspora. Remember that health care, housing, education, and food are very basic human rights. And when you deprive people of these things, they are effectively enslaved. So register to vote, run candidates in your community, and stand strong because you can change the world. Thank you. Thank you. Let's next go to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, question or comment, please. Yeah, a couple of quick questions. Uh, first, uh, what's Exorcist? What is the status of the, the historical center uh, around the Tulsa massacre? Where are we? Where are we at in terms of that? Um, it is nearing completion. They uh, uh, came. The state came up with about thirty million dollars to build it, and it is under construction. Um, all construction projects have something in common. They all come in uh, over budget and 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 over and past their deadline date. So it's still under construction, but is expected to be completed and opened within a year. Okay, my second question, and this is somewhat philosophical, uh, if not historical. But one of the things when you talk about history, history tends to be cyclical. And the mere fact that you talk about the kind of ignorance and the kind of manip- uh, media manipulation and racism that played a part in the Tulsa massacre. Uh, so I'm just wondering, to what extent can we draw some parallels between what happened in 1929 in Tulsa uh, potentially uh, versus today? Is there any, are there any potential parallels? Oh, boy. So as I'm sitting here at the intersection of M.L. King and John Hope Franklin, I'm looking at the name George Floyd in red spray paint written uh, near the sidewalk. So I think the most important thing to take away from this centennial of the Tulsa massacre is to realize that Tulsa was the tip of the black genocide iceberg that has ripped into our community and brought suffering and death to African people all across the globe long before 1921 and still going on in 2021. It was not a one-off event. It was tied to the long, sordid, ugly history of racist America. That genocidal action was the tip of the iceberg. But guess what? 
modern and historical policing are and were genocidal. Mass incarceration always has been and continues to be genocidal. Inferior, racist housing and education, healthcare, uh, politics, employment, all the policies and behaviors and of every American institution were and still are genocidal. The U.S. social services policies are genocidal. Racism is systemic. It's intersectional. It's international. We cannot forget the struggles of our other brothers and sisters across the diaspora because they are affected by what happens here. What happens here affects them. We have to have solidarity internationally. But most important, we have to realize that racism is the bucktooth ugly child of capitalism, of settler colonialism, neocolonialism, neoliberalism. Racism, parents, and all their hateful, ugly isms that come out of them that still continue to oppress people across this globe all have their root in white supremacy. Including Palestine, yes, my brother, let us not forget that people are dying right now in Palestine in a situation that seems like a rerun. I swear those so-and-sos must have taken notes from the crackers in Tulsa, okay? And if we are going to have any hope of liberation, we have to realize once again that the system that oppresses us will never, can never make us free, and we have to have international solidarity. Haki, anything else? Oh, no, no, that's it. Thank you. Okay, next we go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, question, comments? The mic is yours. Uh, okay, unfortunately, I missed the sister's uh, presentation uh, uh, of the history of, uh, uh, of Tulsa. Uh, partly because I'm just getting off of, uh, you know, my uh, job. <laughs> so I ended up missing most of uh, her her presentation. So I won't comment on that at this time. Okay, we'll go to Brother Moses. Question coming, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. I just, I just first I want to say um, I recognize Sister... Eleanor Johnson's voice, and uh, once again, she's on target. Uh, she's on point. You know, it's a brilliant, brilliant analysis and a brilliant political ideological position. Uh, and as as for the speaker of the hour, um, certainly she's she's a magnificent. Um, um, I don't know how people can be so heartless, as this song says. How can people be so cold? Especially people who say they care about strangers, who say who say they care about evil and social injustice. Easy to be hard, easy to be cold. I just know that people get ideologically and politically bound up in in uh, in opportunists, uh, usually economic opportunists, uh, things that are going to make them more more comfortable and uh, and uh, eliminate. Any struggle, or any any struggle in terms of fighting racism and Zionism, they want to ignore and uh, continue their lives in a, in a 
in as much luxury as possible. The skin has its privileges, evidently. And so, you know, we have to guard against this uh, racism and and we have to, as as we have to be independent. We have to be self determination up to and including independence, which means we have to be have a free ourselves from mental slavery and uh and and build build our lives uh, on the foundation. And um uh, anyway, I I thank you for presenting presenting this story. Uh and the question is can it be repeated? And uh, we have to guard against fascism because that is what it is, is fascism. And we have to unite with our Anglo brothers and sisters uh, who are freedom-loving and who who who, who dare uh, be like John Brown and uh, identify with our struggle. And so we have to unite and build upon the positive, and uh, hopefully love will conquer hate. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. This is Africa on the Moon. We're discussing the theme tonight, Tulsa, 1921, and today with our sister Camille. Uh, what we're going to do right now, um, we're going to go to our sister Shirley Pate, see if she has any questions or comments as relate to the subject. Sister Shirley, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Yes, great greetings to everybody, and um, I want to thank Sister Camille for her uh, very comprehensive presentation um, about the event. And um, with the question of uh, Tulsa 1921 versus today, and of course, it's the same damn thing. Because nothing has ever happened in this country to prevent another thing like Greenwood again. No advancement has been made in any area. This is still a country with an imperialist, a a colonialist uh, attitude, and at its core is the most uh, destructive element, not only in this country, but worldwide, and it is the racism that powers all of those things. So uh, the the uh, possibility of uh, many things like Greenwood happening again uh, is unfortunately quite possible. Uh, but again, I just want to thank uh, Sister Camille for her presentation, giving us uh, details, and uh, and uh, as a resident there, uh, giving uh, her perceptions um, and ideas also about the future. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Shirley. Sister Camille, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Um, well, in these questions, um, you might want to repeat some of the things that you have stated in your presentation tonight for those who may have not heard it earlier and for those who may just be coming along to listen to this program. My first question, again, is when we talk about history and we say history is best to reward those who research, and I think Brother Moses raised the question earlier, is 
is it possible that this what were the conditions that led up to uh, this massacre, and do you see this as a possibility of recurring itself or re, or happening over again in the year 2021? What would be your general response to that? I'd have to say that I hope not, but I I don't um, I don't think that anything is impossible given the state of this nation now which in many ways is the same as it was in 1921. Um, we just came out of four years of, of, of Donald Trump um, when it was once again fashionable to basically flash your KKK credentials, okay, where um, admitted white nationalists walked the halls of the White House. I say admitted because we know that this is not an unusual thing in American political in the American political sphere. But it's been a minute since we had people who were openly, admittedly, blatantly racist. Okay, so and but the other thing I want to say is that there are many ways I, I said this already, there are many ways to commit genocide. Um we have what happened to George Floyd and so many others. We have what happened in Tulsa. We had, and Tulsa also was not alone. Two years before the Tulsa massacre, there was a massacre nearby in Elaine, um, Arkansas, a little town called Elaine, an all-black town township or area um, in in Arkansas. Arkansas isn't very far from Tulsa at all, um, and so and and you know about you know Rosewood and about all the other um, all the other places with Chicago, you know, where African people were attacked for the crime of being men and women. And so could it happen again? Well, it is happening because methodology becomes more sophisticated as time goes on. So you don't necessarily need to shoot people if you can um, subject them to inferior education and inferior or no health care and inferior jobs and inferior everything else into mass incarceration and a militarized police force that's an occupying force in our communities and on and on and on. You all know that story. And that is a different form of genocide, one that allows you to walk around the world waving your flag and talking about the beauties of democracy when everybody with half a lick of sense knows that it's a damned lie. So could it happen again? I submit that it is happening in front of our very nose. And I said earlier this afternoon that we're kind of like, you know, lobsters. When they catch a lobster or a crab and want to cook it, they cook it live and they put it in a pot of cold water. And the lobster says, ooh, I'm back in the ocean again. This is pretty good. And as the heat turns up, the lobster's just basking in the warmth. And before you know it, that pot is bubbling and the lobster is dinner. So what we're looking at now is you throw a little bit of a bone to people. You say, hey, y'all got yourselves a president. You know, hey, y'all got y'all got black multimillionaires. You got Oprah. You got Bill Cosby. You got blah, 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 and so and so and so and so. Aren't you driving a nice car? Aren't you living the American dream? Keeping us separated, keeping us focused on nonsense, bread and circuses, and all the junk that goes along with it is just one way of putting us in the position of that lobster in the pot. So can genocide go on again? 
genocide is happening underneath our very noses. Sister Camille, when we look at the history of Tulsa in 1921, what is the major message as African people who lives and born in the U.S. and throughout the world? What is the major message that we should learn from this particular history? Well, the major message that we need to learn is that the situations that created Tulsa, the Tulsa massacre in 1921, are still very much with us. We see them playing out. We, we saw it today and yesterday, literally on the national stage, where the survivors had to say, hold on just one minute. This big shindig that you had where you were going to shine everything up pretty and, and act as if you know, we were all past this in a post-racial society. That's nonsense because if we can't get reparations, there ain't going to be no reconciliation. That's what the survivors said. That's what the attorneys for the survivors forced. But my granddaddy used to say, you can't shine a turd, okay? And so I don't care what kind of shine you try to put on this. Racism created the Tulsa massacre. Racism continues to create the situations that hold down African people in this country and that persecute African people across the globe. African people and anybody else who dares to defy colonialism, neocolonialism, Zionism, neoliberalism, and all the rest that goes along with that. It's in front of your face, people. And Camille, my last question on this particular issue, and I'd like to like get your general opinion. I don't know if, you know, the history of have addressed this question. But anyway, based upon your history of this particular phenomenon, what was the class uh, behavior and makeup among the Africans in Tulsa as relates to this whole question of, one, a people right to self-defense, and two, was there a sector among us who were still in opposition and not willing to do what they needed to do to protect themselves, and they collaborated with the uh, European forces inside Tulsa? Oh, I, well, first of all, I wasn't here. But there's no evidence that I have seen or heard about that would suggest that the people who lived in the Greenwood District were about anything other than saving their own lives. This was a vicious it really it, it was originally called the Tulsa Race Riot, and it was a riot, but it wasn't us that was rioting. It was a riot of white people. It was a white supremacist riot, just like the riot that happened in Charlotte a couple of years ago. That was a white riot, just like uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, you know, where people died um, at the hands of white rioters who decided to take it upon themselves to eliminate African people whose only uh, action, them standing up for their own humanity, their own personhood. So, you know, I, I don't think that there were any African people in Greenwood who were like, oh, no, put down your gun and sing Kumbaya. They knew better. They had walked, many of them in bare feet, out of slavery to come to this place. They didn't have any romantic notions. They weren't interested in singing Kumbaya. They just wanted to be free. And today, this weekend, 
let me say this, that this weekend, this community welcomes the New Black Panther Party, the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, and several other groups of our brothers and sisters who came to this city to say this will not happen again. Because as long as, as police, as long as white people in general can take black lives with impunity, with no repercussions, a brother just a couple of years ago, Terrence Crutcher, was murdered here in Tulsa. Uh, his car broke down, and he, called, he was waiting for AAA. Deputy sheriff rolled up and blew him away. His twin sister, Dr. Tiffany Crutcher, was one of the people who headlined this commission that created this centennial, and she's one of the people that drew back from this commission and said, this nonsense will not go on. Okay, so... We're still dealing with it. It is still in our faces. And I don't think anybody with a lick of sense is is confused enough to think that we ought to lay down and take it. And Camille, I just going to make this statement, and we just like to hear your final thoughts on the subject. My statement is, listen to your presentation, and it's clear to me that the government, U.S. government back then didn't give a damn about African people like they don't give a damn about African people today. So final thoughts on Tulsa, 1921. I'd like to say remember Tulsa and remember all of our other forebearers, our ancestors, our neighbors, our sisters, our brothers, who have experienced, who have borne the brunt of white nationalism, of racism, of colonialism, our indigenous sisters and brothers dealing with settler colonialism, our sisters and brothers in Palestine dealing with Zionism, our sisters and brothers in across the globe who are still dealing with this, and those of us in this nation, in the belly of the beast. Remember that. Seek solidarity. Create solidarity. Not just look for it, but create it where you can. And remember that either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And to be part of the solution, we have to build. We have to build not in a capitalist fashion, not in a way that celebrates individualism, but true to our roots, celebrates commonality, communalism, and a new future that is sustainable that is righteous, and that is just. Kumiya, and can we'd like my to people thank you for Yes, we'd like to thank you for your contribution to today's program and your history on Tulsa, making each one of the day. We thank you. And um, for those who may would like to get in touch with you, whether you can come to our community to share this history and other aspects of our people's history, how can they do that? And how can they support your working community? God's going to say you have an African bookstore that's doing an excellent job in the community. So can you just address that particular question? How can they support you in your work? We do indeed, Brother Africa. We are uh, the owners of Nappy Roots Bookstore in Oklahoma City. And you can reach us at nappyrootsbooks.com on the web or Nappy Roots Books on Facebook or through email, nappyrootsbooks at gmail.com. And I am Camille Landry. All right. We thank you to our listening audience, to our supporters, and the rest of the world. Try to support our
We'd like to thank you for your contribution to today's world um, on the theme, Talk for 1921 and today. And what we're going to do before we take our Revolutionary Culture Break, I'm going back to my panelists, my participants who participated during the section. I actually take at least one minute or so quickly, make a statement. Um, their final thought or the final lesson, I would like for them to address the final lesson that they take from understanding and looking at the history of Tulsa. Uh, so we start with Brother Hackey. What would be your final lesson or, 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 or the most important thing that we should take from this history, Brother Hackey? Well, the sister was, was, was right on time, right on point in terms of her analysis. Uh, one of the things when she said the situation is right in your face, and she's, very, she's, she's absolutely correct. Uh, when we look at the kind of uh, wholesale ignorance that exists in the society, Understand that people in positions of power want to facilitate as much ignorance as they possibly can. And creating that ignorance to make it possible to pit people against one, one another. That is in the interest of the ruling class. And also we talk about media, media, media manipulation. Last week we talked about the CIA role in terms of disseminating false information. But all that is geared toward the empowerment of the ruling class. By empowering the ruling class, uh, it gives them more of more impetus in terms of actually continue doing what they're doing simply because they understand that to disseminate false information, they understand that there's no possibility of them actually being indicted or actually any kind of repercussions from doing so. So therefore they do more of that. And the process is the more that they do this media, media manipulation, then, then the better they become at it. And this is a very, very, concern, very much concern of mine, in particular when you start thinking about the level of uh, illiteracy that exists in American society. And, of course, the question, as Sister Shirley talked about, the question in terms of racism, I mean, clearly, uh, racism is, is, is epidemic in the society. Again, it's in the interest of the ruling class. They want the racism because as long as you can keep poor people fighting each other, then the, the, the wealthy people continue to manipulate and to exploit and to take advantage of the system and, and reap all the benefits in terms of the society. So clearly, uh, the system is right on point, and we've got to be very concerned in terms of potential for this kind of thing happening again. And because it's in your face, we have to take it very, very seriously. Next, we'll go to Brother Kibla. Brother Kibla, what's your um, final take on what lessons should we have learned from Tulsa 1921? Brother Kibla. The, the question was asked, did the climate that created what happened in Tulsa in 1921 could have happened today? And it is happening today because the fact that all the whites got together to vote, with, vote for Trump means that they were fed up with the side the way it is, and they feel they're not getting a fair share. And the fact that they attacked the um, Capitol building and, and occupied seats that their white brother was in, if they would do that to them, you know they would have no problem with doing it to us, so let's not be um, blinded and think that it won't happen today because it is happening. Thank you, Brother Kebalon. Next we go to Brother Moses. We should have should be Take on what lessons should we learn or have gotten from the history of Tulsa, 1921, Brother Moses? Well, I think um, that we should know that, you know, we need people with compassion, with empathy, with altruism. We need people who understand other people's situations and conditions and uh, and uh and can identify what's their problems. Um uh, and if, so that means first of all we have to organize ourselves 
Because if anybody can identify with our problems, we should be able to identify with each other, the people who look like us. And uh, this common oppression means a common organizational uh, resistance. And um, certainly we need to be organized. That's the name of the game. We have only love can conquer this hate. You, we see this January 6th is a, is a same thing, the same mentality as the Unite the Right of Charlottesville. It's all the same people, and uh, we need to resist, resist, resist. Thank you. And from Brother Moses to Sister Shirley, your take, Sister Shirley. This country has never dealt with its biggest problem, which is racism. The reason it hasn't dealt with dealt with it is is because it's too advantageous for certain groups within the society to 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 perpetuate it. And as uh, Sister Camille was talking earlier, she said there's there's different different ways to, to genocide. And the quickest way to to genocide is racism. And uh, I I agree with uh, Brother Aki. I think that these are incredibly dangerous times that we're we're living in. And I don't see the dangers lessening um, in the future. We do know one example that we can we can talk about at some later time uh, about how it's dealt with racism, and that's Cuba. And Cuba, uh, after the revolution, knew it was an issue that it had to deal with, and it began a process, a long process of dealing with it. There are many, many lessons uh, that obviously that this country needs to learn from what Cuba went through. But uh, our learning it, there will so, there will be so many roadblocks thrown up before us as a people to learn those things. It is just um, actually it's very sad. Because the, not learning more about how to to talk about racism with one another, this festering racism is going to continue to kill more and more and more people in this country. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Shirley. And we're going to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor. Um. I agree with all the comments made so far, Brother Africa. And uh, Tulsa is just a, a microcosm of how institution, how systemic race, racism is something that not only affects all of us as individuals, but how our institutions uh, 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 enforce it you know, through through education or miseducation, through through uh under education, 
we we see how the newspaper that said nab a Negro for attacking a girl in an elevator still exists today. It's still published in Tulsa. And uh, when uh, they weren't sued for for the impact they had on the community, quite frankly, uh, the brutality against the Tulsa rev- uh, residents was evoked by such a headline. And as uh, the gentleman said, the January 6th siege on the Capitol was a group of white supremacists. But as Brother Moses said, we must organize. We must organize with all our brothers and sisters, no matter what their race or nationality. The success of the Black Lives Movement was an example of the organizers working with whites, uh, the international community, mosques, synagogues, everyone throughout the nation and the world to bring a focus on what is still happening to African Americans. And every time we walk outside and we walk on red bricks, we should remember the red man whose land this is today, the red blood that we shed as the diaspora. And when we look at black pop, we should remember that that's our skin and this land was raised and became this great powerful nation on the backs of us. And at the same time, we have to remember the green sky. And this is a copyrighted poem, by the way, excerpts. I don't even remember it myself, but it is copyrighted by Eleanor Johnson. The green trees are our hope for our children and the future. And the blue skies are what will be. And most importantly, Brother Africa, I'd like for us to remember, thank God Tulsa came to the forefront. Because as Sister Camille said, these atrocities to black townships happened across the United States during the 1920s before the Great Recession. And right into the 1970s, we saw black townships such as North Inglewood, Maryland, and others not be uh, given what they paid taxes to the state of Maryland and the federal government. They were not allowed to have their trash picked up. They had a black-owned trash guy picking up the trash. They were not a given sidewalks to walk on. They built sidewalks in their own community. But what America needs to remember, what they do to the least of us, or what the people they view as the least of us, they'll do to themselves. So when you walk along these rich suburbs in Maryland and Virginia, there's still no sidewalks because we're not paying attention to anything. Right now we're letting developers gentrify across this great nation, and they aren't paying for the interest infrastructure the taxpayers are. They're not, they're not paying for the displacement of the masses our society is, but most of all, the diaspora is because I see black 
people laying on the streets homeless in every city I go. But they're not alone. The elderly, the disabled, uneducated are there too. So I just hope that we, uh, from this wonderful sister's story, that she will investigate and tell us the stories of other townships that were destroyed by fire. To research all the time when you look at these uh, uh, black atrocities, they called them race riots, but they weren't race riots. They were white folks riding on black people. You see it in you see it in the nation's capital during that same era on Capitol Hill. It's just it's just an atrocity, and yes, it is happening right now. Gentrification is an assault on the working class. And as everyone said, we need to organize. And one thing we should have a copy of just to remind ourselves is a poem published in Langston Hughes magazine in 1929 called The Willie Lynch Story. And it tells it like it is. Divide the country people from the city people, the tall from the short. And it goes on to talk about divide and conquer, and how someone told the master, you won't need to lynch them anymore when you divide them against each other because they may hate you, but they don't trust themselves. So with that, I say, love your neighbor. Thank you, Brother Africa, and and your uh, wonderful team for coming together every week to allow the public to speak and have access to information that is otherwise suppressed uh, by default because of a lack of media access. And we need to reverse some of those Ronald Reagan laws that allowed for people like Rush Limbaugh and Fox 5 just to prop up all this propaganda as news and us to go back to, if it's not news, you should be sued. If it's not news, you should be jailed, because this kind of information has a tremendous impact on people. And we can see this cult political movement called the Q. That's an example of it. And people like Taylor Greene may end up in Congress, and we don't need completely blind, ignorant people. So I, I, all I can say is thank you so much for, for having the sister on and thank uh, Sister Shirley Tate and Brother Akeem, Brother Moses, Brother Anthony, and the other gentleman who I'm sorry I do not know your name. And thank you, Sister Mimi, and everyone who calls into Africa on the move. Thank you. Next, we have Brother Anthony. Brother, that's your response to which should be um, a major lesson that we take from the history of Tulsa 1921. Yes, uh, certainly. Um, I think uh, based upon, uh, you know, Sister Camille's presentation tonight, uh, one of the, the lessons we should take 
from uh, the uh, the Tulsa attack is uh, the importance of being organized, the importance of forming our own uh, uh, independent political organizations. Uh, and uh, and it's important to do that before we go into coalitions with other people. Uh, and uh, because... Um, we're the only ones that have our interests as primary. And, uh, you know, and uh, also the other thing I draw from this is the fact that it's an observation that Kwame Ture made uh, several years ago, that Africans were the only people that shed their, their blood for reform. Uh, most other people that shed their blood got genuine change. I mean, uh, I mean the uh, the, uh, the 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 colored only and whites only signs that permeated uh, the U.S. Uh, during uh, the early part of the 19th and 20th centuries have since gone away, but. In spite of that, racism is as real and and pervasive as ever. And, uh, you know, but uh, we have won some uh, reforms over the decades. We we shed blood for them. So we should remember what some of those reforms are. Uh, You know, uh, and also... Uh, you know, keep in mind that uh, uh, an observation that Martin Luther King Jr. made a long time ago, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, which is why it's important that, as Sister Eleanor said, that we express solidarity with other struggling and oppressed people worldwide. Because what goes on uh, on in one part of the world inevit- inevitably affects another part, and uh, and we can see this with what's happening with the Palestinians in Palestine today, at the hands of Zionist forces. Those are the same forces that train a lot of the urban police in the U.S. In, in the tax tactics they use against Africans here. So we've Thank got you, to study our history carefully. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, brother. Were you finished? Yeah, I was, yes. Sorry. Okay, good. You listen to Africa on Move as Brother Africa. What we're going to do now, we're going to take a Rupture culture break, and when we come back, we're going to ask all our panelists and participants today their one minute final thoughts for today's program. This program will be a two part. This is the first part of a two part Tulsa 1921 and today. For the articles that we're not discussed today, we will continue them next week. So we want you to come back next week, same time, same place, and engage with us as we talk about critical issues that are impacting our people and the world we live in. 
We want to always speak truth to the powerless as well as the powerful. This is what we do on Africa on the Moon. So spread the word, and we will come back, and we will have our final thoughts for the night from our panelists and participants. This is Africa on the Moon. so concerned about your nomination. That's a form of segregation. You're African. Join the African Revolution. That's the only solution. Fight for Pan-Africanism, which has been properly defined as the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. With the attainment of the objective of that goal, it will help free all African people throughout the world. We welcome you to Africa on the Move in our closing on part one of the two-part series, Tulsa 1921, and today, which is May 30th, 2021, we will have our final thoughts from our participants and panelists for the day, and we will start from the bottom and go up. Right now, I see we still have our guest on the line who gave a excellent presentation on the history of Tulsa in 21. We can ask the sister Camille if she would like to just 
uh, give us her final thoughts for tonight. Sister Camille, we bring you back in. Thank you. And I want to say thank you again, um, Brother Africa, for having me on this program. And thank you to all who, who've born with me as I tried to tell the story because it really is secondhand information for me, required some research. Um, I, I want to say that in general, without knowledge, the people perish because knowledge is the basis of power. Understand where power comes from, how it is deployed, how it is used against you, how you can use it in the in the in your own quest for liberation. So, um, as all the people here on this call, I'm sure have already done, we have to encourage each other to be knowledgeable of our past, of our present, and knowledgeable about the future. We have to take away from this story of the terrible things that went on in Tulsa in 1921, an awareness of our continued peril. If we don't move forward toward liberation in solidarity with others who suffer under the same system and in solidarity with each other, with other African people, then we are facing a fate not much different from what happened to the people of Tulsa in 1921. So remember, learn from it, and let it encourage you to, first of all, to do what the people of Tulsa's Greenwood District did prior to its destruction, which is come together to affect their own liberation, but to do what the people of Tulsa are still trying to do, still striving, uh, trying, striving to do, which is to come together to complete the task. Because it's far from done. This story is not over yet. We got to keep on keeping on. Thank you, Sister Camille. Next, we'll go to Sister Shirley. Your final thoughts for tonight, Sister Shirley. Well, I am. I'm very pleased uh, to first of all have the opportunity to listen to S- Sister Camille speak tonight um, about uh, Greenwood. Um, and and the impression that it is left with me is much what Sister Camille just said. Uh, it, even though it was in 1921, it is a very close cautionary tale, and I do not see any of the elements that we need as a society available to us, something that we can uh, 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 t- to sit down and talk with others about that would in any way prevent things like that happening again and any time soon. Um, so I, uh, I, am, I am just glad on the 100th anniversary um, of Greenwood uh, that we got such valuable uh, information. Uh, it it is a uh, it is a uh, a case a a perfect ta- a case of what racism uh, at its worst can do, and it's something that we all in whatever we do in our organizing and with groups that we belong to is uh, to remember such cases as Greenwood 
and realize that this particular country in which we live here in the U.S. is so far behind in being able to to prevent another uh, Greenwood that we all must continue to talk about the issue of Greenwood and tell others and share that uh, knowledge as well. So again, I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to listen to Sister Camille and all of the panelists and the participants who have called in tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Shirley. Next we go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Brother Moses. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, uh, I think, you know, this has been a wonderful show. Um, I think it's been informative. Uh, anyone who's listened and pays attention which should have grown a little bit in their in their understanding of of, of life and uh, the phenomena and contradictions we are faced with, as especially as, as black people. And uh, I think, you know, that uh, it's, you can't legislate uh, compassion, empathy, and altruism. You can't legislate that. People either have to have it or they don't. And But you can legislate laws that, that uh, hold people accountable for their actions and hopefully change behavior eventually. And so, you know, we have to build on love and truth while they uh, counteract the fascism of hatred and lies. That's, they're building on hatred and lies. We have to build on love and truth. And, and so, you know, we, we will overcome. Thank you and have a good night. Thank you, Brother Moses. From Brother Moses, we are going to Sister Eleanor. Your final thoughts? Uh, I'd just like to say to Sister Camille, she's a fantastic storyteller, and I hope that she, uh, like Stanley Jackson, did the film on Tulsa that we're all going to look at soon or view, I guess, uh, us who have cable, (laughs) that she continued to discuss the Tulsa story and to let people know that it's just one of many stories, but it's one that came to the forefront because of legislative action in Oklahoma and that we try to do something like this throughout our nation. We saw Germany this week, uh, apologize and offer some type of repayment to the people of Malawi for its behavior from 1904 to 1910. And we're still waiting for the United States to acknowledge the annihilation of the Native Americans and the brutal brutal torture and exploitation of the slaves. And so we're waiting. And I would simply urge Kino brothers and sisters to remember that if we want to study African history, we have to study Latin American history. And uh, as the song, the reggae song says, no matter whether you're high, 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 or low, low, low in your complexion, you're an African. 
So this is a time to give a shout out to them. I've heard many comments coming from folks, and I was saying, wow, I wonder if they noticed that their hair isn't European hair. It's Native American hair. I wonder if they remember that the people of Mexico and the Mexican Cultural Institute celebrate their African heritage, not by the way the people look, but through the arts and crafts that they practice, the language and the food that they eat. And that's not all of Mexico, but it's in some provinces of Mexico where there's a clear vision and uh, where the diaspora has assimilated with the indigenous people and the people of Mexico. So I would urge folks to do one thing, organize. I would urge folks to remember that Zionism is not anti-Semitism, but it's anti-apartheidism. It's anti-racism. And I would urge now during this pandemic that the proprietary knowledge that Moderna holds, that it makes available to any country that can manufacture the vaccine at this time and follow the recommendations of the World Health Organization. And I would also like to share on what Shirley, Sister Shirley said, and that's right now Cuba, to lift the embargo, allow the resources that Cuba needs to distribute its vaccine to its masses. Do not commit genocide. Right now in Palestine, the people don't have water to drink. They they didn't have a, a good water system to start. They, they, their roads have been destroyed. Their homes are destroyed. And just like 10,000 were left homeless in, in Greenwood, 70,000 are homeless in Palestine tonight. So what we should do is unite. And as Brother Moses said, and Brother Anthony said, and all of us, and, and, and the sister said, we must unite and know that this is a pivotal point on planet Earth. We have to fight neo-fascists, whether it's, whether it's in Brazil, whether it's in India, whether it's in the United States with the Trump people and Trump himself, whether whether it's in China, whether it's wherever it is, stand up and fight against fascism and unite with the peace-loving people of the world. And remember, social justice is human liberation. And it's time to think about women and girls first and educate them on planet Earth. Just like the organization Pink passes out seeds because they first need to grow food to eat in order to be able to think and relax. You know, a hungry person is an angry person. Bob Molly says a hungry man is an angry man. But a hungry woman and child are just starving, as we see in Yemen. So thank you. And uh, stand strong, people. One love. Thank you, sister. Next, we'll go to Brother Kebelong. Your final thoughts, Brother Kebelong. Uh, I think overall it was a good program. The sister's presentation was very powerful. 
if we should um, benefit, we should hear her again. Perhaps uh, she have some um, oral or written um, testimony from those who were there doing talks at that time. Uh, it'd be good to hear that from the, from people who actually were there. But other than that, though, the program was very good, and such so a presentation was powerful, and I enjoyed it. Thank you for your participation tonight, my brother. Next, we're going to find thoughts on Brother Haki. Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, I think at some point the populace in America has become very, very clear. There's a real disparity that exists in the society. Uh, recently, I read an article about the Paradise Papers. Now, most of us know about the Panama Papers. But the Paradise Papers sort of embellish in, uh, the role the wealthy play in terms of hiding their wealth. And so clearly uh, there's no um, desire among, the, among powerful elites to clamp down on these, these, these loopholes that exist that enables the wealthy to, uh, to, to not pay taxes. Uh, so clearly this is problematic for society in terms of this need for resources or revenues in terms of just you know, operating society. Now, one of the things that's very interesting when we talk about this, 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 this uh, disparity that exists in society, uh, T. Pickett, T. Pickett Boone, uh, of the, who has a major uh, hedge fund, this guy owns 40% of the freshwater aquifers in the United States. Uh, Bill Gates, uh, of course, everyone knows Bill Gates, owns 250,000 acres of farmland. He paid about close to $700 million uh, for the purchase of that farmland. The top 10% of the population owns 70% of the wealth, or GDP. Uh, the top 1% net worth in this country is $35 trillion. Uh, the bottom 93% of the population owns just 3% of GDP or 3% of the total wealth of the society. Now, and given this background, I think people have to understand that when we talk about police brutality, we have to fundamentally understand that the police are the first line of defense for the, for the wealthy, for the capitalists. And so, therefore, when you talk about the kind of, um, uh, of viciousness, uh, um, the kind of, uh, of propensity for, for violence, the the, the the tendency to kill people uh, based upon skin color, to understand that they're doing it, they're, they're carrying out the will of those positions of power. And when you start to think about it in terms of disparity, in terms of having access to all this wealth, then fundamentally we have to understand that what they're doing is they're bankrupting the society. And bankrupting the society, it's important that people understand that when you bankrupt the society, essentially what you're doing is relegating of the majority of people uh, to poverty. When you relegate the majority of people to poverty, then they act out. They become aggressive. They become angry. Uh, they want to hurt someone. And so what the government conveniently does is redirect that anger uh, toward between poor people. So you have a situation where poor people actually take out their aggressions and their anger against one another. And the police just sort of, police serve as a sort of a uh, safety valve of sorts. If, in fact, if um, poor people get to the point where they don't no longer kill one another, then they always have the police in place in terms of taking care of all the, that, that, that sizable population who's a legitimate threat to people, capitalists or the people in positions of power. So clearly this is what we're up against, and this is why when we talk about in terms of what happened in 1921 uh, and we, we tie to what's potentially what could happen in, in, you know, in, in, in the context of now, then understand that this is very, very real. This is all historical. This is all economics, and we have to understand that. Uh, for those who think that everything is fine, that you got a job and uh, everything is fine, the reality is that those jobs are not guaranteed. In fact, the unemployment rate continues to grow. Uh, recently, the federal judges uh, implemented a moratorium on ev evicted people from not paying rent. Well, now the, evicted, now the moratorium no longer exists, so now people are free, to, landlords are free to kick people out because that moratorium no longer exists. And so the, the, the lack of empathy for a poor people's society is growing leaps and bounds. 
unfortunately, there's nothing we, much we can do in terms of getting poor people to understand that to take your frustration on other poor people is silly. Uh, but the, the history is that the tendency for, for people to swallow the propaganda uh, exists. And so as long as that exists and we understand that our people who are not going to understand the, the bigger good or the bigger picture in terms of understanding the role capitalism plays in facilitating all these injustices. So we got a fundamental problem that we're confronted with in society in terms of understanding these fundamental justices and understanding how they manifest themselves in the society. And the question is, can we, over, can, can we overcome uh, these, these discrepancies that exist among, based upon class? And my, my position is that, you know, with organization, there's a possibility that we can create this, 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 a mindset which suggests uh, that uh, this, this notion in terms of killing one another, uh, uh, you know, poor people killing poor people, it's simply uh, uh, nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense at all. And once we come to that conclusion, then we just step away from understanding that the real threat, the real problem that we're confronted with is the capitalist class. And in understanding that, then we have a, an, an incentive to work together to try to bring about some kind of resolution to the problems that we're confronted with. But make no mistake about it. The government is doing all it can in terms of manipulating people. And like I said before, given the high illiteracy rate in the society, uh, we've got to be very, very concerned about that. So one of the things we have to do, uh, at least on a, um, on, a, uh, on, a more con- on a more contemporary level, is that at a very minimum we have to at least make sure that uh, we make sure the children, the children are educated. Uh, that's, of course, a long-term uh, 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 view. But certainly that's one of the things we have to do. The more, inter- more immediate kinds of things we have to do, we have to organize many institutions. Uh, we have to overcome this uh, political sectarianism to think that your line is somehow preferable to somebody else's line, that your, your political line is more powerful than somebody else's, more correct than someone else. That kind of stupidity has to go. The question is, that what can we do in terms of leaving ourselves with destroying capitalism? And that has to be the focus. And as closing, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because that's key in terms of moving forward. Without some clarity, the possibility of moving forward becomes extremely difficult. And having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. And you the same, Brother Hakeem. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. Your final thoughts for tonight. Yes, my final thought for tonight is that in order to prevent uh, uh, reoccurrences of events like uh, Tulsa in 1921, we have to organize and teach our people the truth about our history. And the work in that regard that Sister Camille is doing is very important. It's a very important contribution to that effort. But uh, we have to intensify it. And the only way is through permanent mass organization. And we have to politically educate one another as to the truth of our history, regardless of how painful it is. We have to teach our people the truth about our history. That is the only way we can prevent, uh, you know, uh, mistakes from reoccurring. We thank you, Brother Anthony. We thank all our political panelists. We thank our guests. We thank our listening audience. And we'd like to make a couple announcements before we close out for the night. Number one, again, we're asking our friends to put on their supporters to put on their agenda that Africa on the Moon in conjunction with 
other progressive organizations in our community who will be participating and traveling to Cuba on a Freedom Ride trip, a Black History Education Culture Tour from December 27 to January 3rd. If you have a, if you have an interest and want to support us, please email us at Africa on the move to at gmail dot com or you can email the African Awareness Association two at gmail dot com. We are calling for your support. We want to go to Cuba and show our solidarity to the people of Cuba and all the beautiful things that they have historically and continually to do for Africa and all of humanity. As Brother Kwame Ture once taught us, that the greatest crime that a man or a woman can commit is to be ungrateful. So at least let's go and show our gratitude to our brothers and sisters in Cuba and support not only that revolution, but support the ongoing work that they are doing all of, all of the world. That's number one. Number two, we are in the mode and process now organizing the Africa on the Move fan club. If you'd like to become a fan club member of Africa on the Move and a supporter, please email us at Africa on the Move 2 at Gmail and we will share with you in terms of how you can support the radio program and become, and become a club member. We need your support. The more support we get, the more we can better serve our community. We need your support. And last but not least, we ask all of our friends, members, and participants to spread the word that Africa on the Move is a weekly program under the African Women's Association. We come on every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We want to build our numbers. We want to make sure we become we come into the minds and hearts of our people all over the world. So let's begin to try and work towards building a mass participation a listenership at the minimal as it relates to this network. So we're asking you for your help to share that with your network and your friends and we'll greatly appreciate it. And on that note, what we're going to do right now, we're going to go out tonight with the song Buffalo Soldier. And we're going to remind all of our brothers and sisters the words from Brother Bob Marley, don't become a Buffalo soldier. And for the next 10 minutes, we will share with you music of liberation. Until next time, let's remember always to subscribe to the forward arrow, backward arrow. So you listen to Brother Africa, and this has been Africa on the Moon. we see you next Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time.
Mom, for scared words come to pass. Mom, for scared words come to pass. Can't get. Mom, for scared words come to pass. Marcus Gavin Word What if my had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. Cause integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did its way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they paying me. Seemed like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was the mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? If you's a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence or forever be our own downfall. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale and the devil is a fake. Argue in the silence, but don't let it steal our faith. Hide behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. 
It be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we go? Sometimes the key to life you looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in. 1940 or something, I swear And all I have is love and joy to give I need to spread my wings I need to fly away I want to get
brother, brother, brother There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find
Thoughts of the past have faded. The only thing left is the memories of our belated. And I hate it when someone dies to get all hurt up for a silly gold chain. Rock chunk, word up. It doesn't make you a big man. And to one ain't going, this your brother man. And you don't know that's part of the plan. Why? Cause rap music is in full demand. Understand?
gentlemen.
What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seem like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was the mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence, or forever be our own downfall. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it steal our fate. Hide behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Because if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for will be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man lay dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head. I need to spread my wings I need to fly away I want to get high today Who got five on my little bundle of temporary Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary Your statistics said by now that I'm gonna be dead and buried But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already And I'm march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose Two different tribes and we fighting the same person Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us Cosmic companionship sustained me After my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today, I must have bumped my head, and landed in 1940 or something, I swear, and all I have is love and joy to give, I need to spread my wings, I need to fly away. en la cabeza, en intelecto y actitud, he estado sobrado, somos ricos y sigo respetando al rato de Puerto Rico, al cubano, al colombiano, mexicano y español, pero lo de nosotros sale del corazón, con sentimiento, con talento, violento, ojo, no con armas, sino con conocimiento, el intelecto emana de los foros, te metes en internet y lo ves en los foros, esa sabiduría, aunque muchos locos piensen que son habladurías, pero es la primera fondo la ciencia.
gracia mía para que después hablen como comadre chismosa. Yo te escribo en verso y en prosa. No soy Alice en el país de las maravillas. Estamos claros, te portas mal, te atribillas, te hacen papillas. Es que eso es obvio. O eres ángel o eres demonio, ni niño. O eres ángel o eres demonio. Quiero a toda la gente con las manos arriba. ¿Dónde están los latinos con las manos arriba? Que vive el hip hop con las manos arriba. ¿Qué? Con las manos arriba. Que viva la cultura con las manos arriba. El deporte con las manos arriba. Venezuela con las manos arriba. ¿Qué? ¿Qué? Sentimiento, sabor, rumba, corazón. La salsa retumba, retumba el tambor. No se te olvide el coroco. Recuerda el folclore. Te lo digo el rap. Crece la tensión.
So we wrote a song, Fruit of Labor wrote a song uh, about water contamination based upon struggles that were going on in North Carolina. So we're going to do a little bit of it right now. Okay. It's called Justice Flowing Down Like Water. Family drank from a deep clear well to the hearts and moved underground. Now the only story left to tell is innocence lost in community action. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Little girl, don't read so well. There's a lot that you'll never see. Some say it's the mercury in the fish of mama heat. Power plants causing you and me. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Clean water, clean water safe for all. That's it. <laughs>
Break down your way, so put one hand before.
sleeping it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in one, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's C Lo for push ups now. Many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Yeah, I've been Milan. 
know what makes 